Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I have to tell you, football season started this year. And as you know, I'm a huge Philadelphia Eagles fan. And what I've learned is, well, it's so hard to go watch a game out in the L.A. area because every bar is just packed with people and they're all watching different games and there's all different kinds of uh, sounds. But I'm going to tell you this, people. If you're a Philadelphia fan and you live in the Burbank area, when the, Phil- when the Eagles aren't on national TV, because when they're on national TV, me and Joanne stay at home and watch it. I don't feel like going out and paying for food. I, mean, I just watch it on my own TV. But when they're on regular TV, just that you have to go watch it when they like when they play the Texans or a team that's not that good. Come join us because we go to Black Angus. I'm going to tell you something. I go to Black Angus in Burbank. They have like 15 TVs. They have great food specials and no one shows up. There's me, Joanne. I have two other Philly friends that come out. And then there's a chubby guy named Chili and a, and a gym teacher named uh, Bronco. And that's we're the only ones in there. And it's great. So please come out, uh, not this week, the next week, because we'll hang out and root for the Eagles. So anyway, are you a, Mac, Mac Scale is my uh, guest. Are, are you a you're a Detroit guy? Are, are you a big, are you a Lions fan? Well, I, you know, I'm from Detroit, so the Lions are the team that I've known about, you know, all my life. And uh, I have a daughter who lives up in Alaska, my oldest biological daughter, um, who I just met 12 years ago, but she's 46 now. Wow. But, How, but well, she lets me know every Lions game and every Michigan game because she, she grew up in Ann Arbor. Now, you grew up in Detroit. Uh, yes, out Downriver, Detroit. Okay, and now, what well, we talked earlier, your your sister has a clothing store there? No, no. Oh. My, my sister lives in Hawaii now and has okay. for many years. My sister, Emily. So, and I, I told you I would have had this uh, Say Nice Things About Detroit teach t-shirt on because i've been wearing it lately and i and i'll tell you more about that but it was really interesting that the minute we met and we were riding up in the elevator and you're telling me about a a friend of yours an actress who's from detroit and and um so emily uh my dad had also had an office supply store in the penobscot building down the big biggest office building in detroit as i was growing up and um and uh, eventually a couple of other stores. So that's how he he dealt with having seven kids. My mother had three sets of twins, so there were seven of us within six years. Are you a twin? I have a twin sister. Wow, three sets. That, that's yeah. just amazing. Yeah. Then a single brother two years later, and then Emily and her twin, Edie, uh, they're like Irish triplets, you know. They okay. were born less than a year later. <laughs> and... Um, and then another set of twins, Anne and uh, Julia. And Anne was the one that stayed in Detroit and, and, and ran the general office supply and the other, all of that business. But, um, uh, so, but it, there was a time when Emily took over the offices of Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner, and Smith, the big you know, financial uh, stock firm, uh, that uh, vacated and moved out north to one of the northern suburbs. Uh, this was like part of the you know the death knell of Detroit. Emily took over the lease on it and created what she called Emily's Across the Street, because it was across the street from my dad's office supply store that she'd been managing. You know, and she kind of threw down her her glove or threw her hat into it. You know, and um, had a had a place that uh, she all the different divisions of the, the you know the cubicles and everything. She just turned into different kinds of shops. She had a big screen, uh, big screen TV, you know, with a uh, playing videotapes of things going. Everybody from the mayor to the winos and well the home, you know, people right. hung out in Emily's and um, a kind of open policy. And then she and her partner uh, developed a campaign around Detroit because they felt that the way that the Chamber of Commerce was going at it in a typically Chamber of Commerce way. So one of the things that they did was they, um, in 1979 first, but in 1980 over every state capital, they flew a plane dragging a sign. You know, there was no uh, internet then. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, not not in the way we know it now. No social media. So I say, you know, hello, uh, um, Denver, say nice things about Detroit. Hello, Noam. Say warm things about Detroit, I think. And no, but the the idea was to get people asking, uh, why did that happen? And then they made, you know, the contact was made, signed Emily. So, and and the other thing that she did was she developed a run, Emily's fun run. She had to, she got, had to get 
I heard tales about it from people who were in the office, the way she played the chief of police off with the mayor to finally say, okay, we'll let you do your run where you're going to send off a bunch of wheelchairs for crying out loud. And then other people are going to run and they're going to run through the neighborhoods, the Greek neighborhood and this neighborhood. You know, they, we're, it's just, somebody's going to mug somebody. Right. You know, it's going to be a huge <laughs> black eye. And, uh, uh, and the free press, because they had their own marathon where they'd gotten like 600 runners you know so anyway so emily had her fun run but the first one was like fifteen thousand people she created something over a number of years that became that model for runners coming you know into a city and those in the city and and running through neighborhoods and not and as a matter of fact uh she pitched the idea to tom bradley and the folks here in la who were going to run the marathon down down the freeway uh, they took her idea and farmed it out to somebody local, you know, because exactly, that's how city politics work. But anyway, after a, a number of years, Detroit, of course, I'm sure all of the listeners know that Detroit is it's sort of the poster child for maybe the Phoenix rising, and right. in many ways it is. Um, uh, but it's certainly changed significantly. But there's a company that's creating a brand. Right now they're doing bicycles and watches. But they're, you know, local, on the floor. You can see them creating that training program to, to do manufacturing in Detroit because that's what Detroit has had as its soul, you know. And they bought the brand of the shoe polish, Shinola. So this they've sort of resurrected this brand, Shinola. And they've gotten, they started, they, they started using the um, Say Nice Things About Detroit, and it awakened so many people that said, well, that's Emily, you know, so now they, she's working with them and, and others around this whole thing. So in a way, there's a, there's a circle back around from 1980, and that's my thread since I was, you know, last. That's like great, though. 1980, you know, so we kind of think, because there's a whole lot relevant in those 30 years and how things are coming around in many ways. Uh, with a lot of changes, and so I think that's a great way to open up whatever you want to talk about. Guide, no, guide no, along to what. I you're know. That's, yeah, it's great. That's so funny because I, I always say, you know, when when you live in LA and you're in this business we're in, it's everyone. It's like there's always like not six degrees of uh, Kevin Bacon they say this is like three degrees like there's always someone you know and you've had a great career and you know I'm sure you've worked with people and it's just it's so funny how everyone is like somehow connected in a weird way and the stories that connect people are great stories. You know, it's just, that's what I love about interviewing people just because, yes. you know, it's just, you know, this girl knows yeah. your, and your sister and then it's just yeah. everything's, and you yeah. were going to wear this shirt today, but you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> now I got to ask you now, you know, when you were a little kid, did you want to be an actor when you were a little kid? Or I mean, what made you get into this acting field that you eventually have had your whole life career as? Well, I, well, you know, certainly the most visible part of it, you know, what I'm, what I'm, most known for i guess but for me it's been a part of uh, just an on just being on the learning curve you know right <laughs> with the universe uh but uh so you know my best answer would be just by drift and design uh you know there were things my mother had been an actress before she got married when the war broke out and people were you know getting married in coffee shops say hey, you look like a pretty sharp gal right <laughs> <laughs> and uh but she had been um uh, you know, at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, and then she was in Barter Theater, and these were things. She was a swimmer in the in a what was sort of the hair of its time, or what's of maybe more, you know, whatever whatever right. the, the 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 Broadway at this time. At that time, there was uh, um, Esther Williams and uh, uh, the Billy Rose Aquacade. So, since my mother was a swimmer, she swam in the Aquacade. You know, growing up in Downriver, Detroit, that was like, well, that's something, you know. But. Um, uh, she had that. She participated in local theater. My dad was a piano player and had a band. Now he was booking the bands of the guys that had been in his band, you know. Uh, my, uh, so I was more, maybe leaning more to music. But if anybody had asked, you know, growing up in our neighborhood, who is going to be, you know, out of, out of all those gales, is anybody going to go into it? It would have been my twin sister and my younger brother, Scanlon. People, oh, that's obviously it's going to be them, you know. <laughs> I was sort of geeky and athletic and, and um, you know, so for me, uh, it was really a sort of, but, but the path was there as something people could do, you know, and um, it was really more about opening up and connecting emotionally and that got me. So did you, did you take, did you start acting in Detroit or did you just 
as you say, go west, young man. No, what, I, what did you do? I went. I, so, so I graduated from high school in 61, and then college in 65. I went to a little college in Massachusetts called Williams College. <clears throat> and uh, that was a time where you either went to officer candidate school or you went to graduate school, you know, or you went in the foreign service or you went, uh, you know, got drafted. And um, I wasn't really, you know, somebody said uh, one day, hey, there's a guy over at the, where they interviewed, you know, about jobs, whatever, a placement center, whatever the hell it was called. <laughs> right. You know, he's from a school and they're looking for teachers at this country day school and outside of Detroit. So I went over and interviewed him and I was just what he was looking for to teach the eighth grade boys because I went to an Eastern college and I played sports. Yeah, and and he didn't care that I didn't know anything about ancient history. I didn't even know what what did I sign on to teach ancient history, you know. Uh, uh, but it was a great experience, and it was an alternative to being in Vietnam. And then I went to graduate school at University of Michigan, and the only school that was still open was the business school. And I'd been an economics major, so that's that was an easy in. But I, you could take a course outside of the business school one if it was a graduate level course and just looking through what else could i do you know i found this theory of acting class that was this sort of the the intake class for the graduate students and for some reason they let me in and that gave me that kind of experience uh gilda radner was in that okay. group uh and a number of other people but so when I moved to San Francisco, and I was just trying to think, well, maybe I'll go to law school. Did you just go there because you wanted to get out of Michigan, or you just said, I want something different? I, everything was happening in San Francisco. I see. You know, it's funny. <laughs> I, just, I, just, I just watched, uh, I just actually watched, uh, the, they showed that show on the CNN in the 60s, uh-huh. and they just showed, like, when San Francisco was just, I mean, and because I, I was born in 63, so uh-huh. I don't really remember that, but when I was watching it now, I was like... You would look at the, what was going on. You're like, oh my god! This was like people were just. It was. It looked like it was insane. Well, in in, in many ways, I, I guess it was. You know, and I kind of when I got there it was actually the flower was wilting in a way. Okay. And I've only come more recently to really understand that there were kind of two things going on that overlapped there. There was the the, the kind of free speech movement over in Berkeley and a very you know very. Um, dichotomizing kind of political consciousness and then and then the hate that moved on out and up into the northwest and stuff was more the you know drop out you know right. tune in um so uh and those were you know in in many ways opposed but at the same time they they overlap there in that uh in that area and i had a high school or junior high sweetheart who had moved out there and i had you know seen her and we had connected and she so that was Time to leave um, Detroit, and I made it to 26, and uh, I so I didn't have to be concerned about the draft. Okay, yeah, because back then you couldn't. Once yeah, you're... yeah, but you know, I it was in my 30s. I was up late when I talking with my mother, and uh, she um, said something. I don't remember what, but I just she'd been uh, talking about her theory about raising children was like uh, civilizing little animals, you know. <laughs> But her grandfather was a World War One psychological casualty. He was a wonderful Grandpa Jack, you know. But during the time that he was supposed to be a dad, he was either not there or doing the various kinds of things that hardcore alcoholics do. And um, so she had raised my brother and I. Had just implanted very early: don't don't go to war. Whatever you do, don't okay. don't do that. So it was not uh, clear. Um, I ended up playing a Vietnam vet for many years, Wojo and others, right. you know, and have had a lot of inner, did a film on Agent Orange. I, I mean, I think we're all veterans of that era. And there are still many people right now are still dealing with that. And then war is, you know, it's this. I, I recently did an episode of uh, Mad Men, and I'm not allowed to say anything more than. It relates into this, what is the cost of it? it it's funny you, know. you say that, because I've had a few other guys that have been on Mad Men, and they mm-hmm. say, we can't say anything. We only, we only see our pages of the script. It's like, you guys are sworn to secrecy. Yeah, well, I, we, I saw a whole script when we did the table read, but also made it very clear that, you know, on both the, the carrot and the stick, you know. But, you know, there's such care in that uh, show, and there's a kind of integrity that runs through it that you say okay that's i I don't have any trouble with that i just 
you know, right. so I, I shut myself up on where I was going with it. <laughs> so, so you're in San Francisco. Now, what makes you venture down to L.A.? I mean, what, how does All that right, happen? So, so while I was there and I was, you know, playing a piano, that was the thing I could play piano. I did learn enough piano to play and pick up rock bands or piano bars. Uh, and uh, so I was thinking of going to law school, and uh, but I saw in the newspaper one in the one ads that they were looking for understudies at the Little Fox Theater, where they just opened up a uh, play based on the novel One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And I had read that. That was when I first read Cuckoo's Nest. I read it straight through, you know. And then some guy said, "Hey, we're driving to California. You want to come?" I absolutely, you know. So I made my first trip out in '69. Or 68. Uh, and and uh, so I went down and auditioned. The fact that I had taken this course made me feel like, well, I guess I could read. Okay. And they offered me the part of understudying the chief. They had just opened. The th- traditional theater critics were not very excited, but Herb Kane, who was a big columnist, the columnist in San Francisco at the time, you know, and he gave it a raise. So, so it was kind of a, an accidental thing, but I was connecting to... Uh, character who was just not able to to deal with the th- the things that had happened in his life. So he, although he was very big, he th- actually thought he was little. And it was based on a character that Kesey had come up with as the narrator for his book One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He was on a writing scholarship at Stanford, and he was working in the night shift at the uh, at the mental hospital. And he was taking acid as one of the ways that the CIA was, you know, distributing acid out and, you know, dosing some people without their knowledge or permission and (laughs) others through academia and all, you know. And, um, but it was a, it was a, you know, a connection. And the guy that was playing the part got in a fight with another actor and got fired. And all of a sudden I was playing this part. So were you nervous at all? I mean, getting up on stage, or did you, were you prepared for it? Or what was, you know, what went through your head? Well, I had a kind of, I mean, there is a certain thing about acting, like singing and dancing. It's, it's in us all, you know. We make these separations. There are people who, uh, you, know, there, you know, there are Native American people who are really good at the flute, and others who are really good at dancing, and they're, you know, so, but, but there's, they're, they're natural psychic, psycho-spiritual functions, you know, and if we don't do them in some kind of, way the same way if we don't if we if our physical system you know gets backed up <laughs> right we yeah. have certain you know so metaphorically it's it's all going on uh but i i um i got you know um for the th- that point it was just a matter of doing it and where am i supposed to be standing when this right. when the lights go dark and the pin light and what and then, and then the scene the chief didn't actually have very much to say in the play a lot of it was on tape, and at this point, they still had this other voice, you know. So it's not till the second act he even speaks for the first okay. time. So, uh, um, you know, this would be interesting to actors, I think, because when uh, I was uh, done, and I ended up alone in the in the uh, dressing room with the guy who played McMurphy. Uh, I'm assuming people know this story it went right. over the cuckoo's nest. <laughs> All right. But anyway, and he was not happy that his friend had been uh, fired and he'd given his notice and it was a kind of, you know, one of the, the guy that played the chief was a real actor studio guy. And there was another guy who was very technical, but he was playing something he was very much in touch with. He was playing a gay man who was finally coming out. So there was something very touching about his performance, even though it was all technique. Right. <laughs> and this really bothered uh, John Garabedian, who played the, uh, was playing the chief, you know. And uh, so at one point, he couldn't resist giving the guy a little forearm shiver, and the guy was a, you know, 6'3", 130 pounds, and John was a big weightlifter, you know. So, it was, so anyway, all that dynamic was going on, uh, and Fred Cook was the actor, and a wonderful actor, and he... And so now it's just us. And I, he said, I said, yeah, got anything for, got to be back tomorrow night. He said, yeah, when we sing the song, when the chief and the, and the McMurphy speak, this wasn't in the movie, but there's this scene where the chief starts singing this song and McMurphy recognizes it and they sing this, why are Briar Limberlock, three geese in a flock, one flew east, one flew west, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. And they're, doing a finger kind of thing that goes with the song and then they embrace and he said don't look at my hand our hands look at me i mean the minute he said it i I was like of course you know 
And he had one other little note, and I said, okay, any more? He says, all the rest would take years of acting. And by then, I was like, I said, you know what, man? I didn't get your friend fired. It sounds like he kind of did that for himself. But whatever, I got to come back tomorrow night, you know, and I'm just, you know, kind of like don't want to be dealing with your attitude here. So if you have something to tell tell me, share with me, please do. Otherwise, you know, shut the fuck up. Right. (laughs) And uh, and he just said what we all know in our hearts because we do it in the ways when we act in lives through different situations because you know because we do um, that you you know just go with what what you're feeling and let that you know work work from your heart and work from uh, being present and if there's something in your life that connects up and resonates do that you know connect with that so see if I had the connection this is what you wanted to do. Well, the experience of it, it was just, you know, it was a, certainly a place to hide out for right. a while. And then I met uh, Bobby Walden and other people. Billy Devane came through town to do a, do a film. And, uh, you know, I started to meet other actors and do workshops and begin to get what there was within that realm of acting and exploring that interior, with, which is like Tennessee Williams said, you know, it, you have to rise to the universal level, but it, it has to come from a very personal place. And um, uh, so, you know, next thing I knew, I was I'd been in L.A. and New York, and I was I started writing songs. Okay. And the next thing I started kind of getting all the auditions I went on for, and one of them was Barney Miller. Yeah, no, it's so funny. Everyone, well, you you know what's funny about that show? And I remember when I was younger watching that show. And it was, I mean, I can, I'm, people crack up because I'm one of the one people that, you know, that we'll, we'll be out at a bar somewhere and we'll talk about old TV shows and I can name all the cast members. Like They're like, how can you do that? How do you remember that? It was such a good show and they don't replay it anymore. And it's, first of all, it's known as the show with the, uh, the best opening bass line ever. Yes. I bet you sound yes. like everyone, if you know yeah. anyone over 40 yeah. and if you say, the, and if they don't know that song, you go, yeah. okay, you had a bad childhood. Now, yeah. you, when you were acting and you were in different shows, when the series came up, I mean, it must have been different because you, you were, you, I mean, I see you, you were in some great shows, you know, I mean, you were, I mean, like all the shows like Canon and, and, you know, the different things you did, different shows that back then we watched a lot, but what was it like? Cause you were acting, acting, then all of a sudden you get a series. Is that well, just? Well, it wasn't, it wasn't really more like the Canon I did. I did a, I did a movie while I was in San Francisco called The Organization. It was the second Mr. Tibbs movie, the okay. Sydney Poitier and Raul Julia was in it and, uh, you know, a bunch of young New York actors, and it was a great experience. And then I, and then that that director asked me to come down and play a role in the pilot he was doing of Canon. He had been hired to do Canon, so Canon was my first TV. You know, I, I um, and and as I said, I I found myself, you know, writing songs or the I'd always written in rhyme to say something to my folks at Christmas time, you know. But rhyme is not something that's given a lot of you know, if it's before 1800, it's not given much of a place in poetry other than a, a kind of um, hallmark right, right. way, you know, when it's song. And, of course, then, you know, and what, what Dylan did and others, you know, all, all of that had happened. But um, anyway, I, um, I was really, you know, playing the kind of second-level bad guy for some of the kind of things, universe, get Christy love, you know. So, I mean, it was a very kind of tv look at the world and everything you know that i remember <laughs> well anyway so i was kind of on my way but i met danny and i was really connect i really felt a connection with danny you know and he said i i had a i did this pilot once i bought my they didn't pick it up i bought my partner out i'm doing it again the guy that played this part was wonderful but he's directing a play in new york he's not available you're really not like him but if you want to read anyway you know i learned later he'd seen me on a show called the paul sand show and called me in specifically but that's the way he presented it and when when i was done he said well you showed me there's another way to do it so i kind of did the you know pilot as a way to give me some money to go out to big sur and it's where i envisioned you know i'm going to go to right. big sur and find a place with an upright piano and write songs um and uh but it was fun to do it got picked up right away it did um the first half season of shows it was a wonderful creative uh, process that evolved pretty quick. Danny Danny instituted a number of things that are the way everybody does uh, multi-camera television series now, but uh, but then they were very new innovations. Um, 
for instance, now you see uh, four monitors down on the on the set showing what all f- all four cameras are doing. The way they did it before was uh, they'd have a blocking day, and the actors would go to and step on the spots where okay. they were supposed to be, and the director would be off in the booth, and it's all headset conversation with you know. Isn't it amazing how technology? And I want to divert a little bit right now. Yeah. it's amazing. Keep that, it interesting. That Tyne- I feel like no, but no, because I, I know you, uh, you, you do documentaries and stuff like that, and you know you have your uh, production company. And I know a while ago you were at Southwest, uh, South by Southwest. That was with a, a, a low budget feature that premiered but, there. But do you also with the, with, with the documentaries and stuff like that, and just you've seen the the technology change so much. Do you ever sit there and go? Wow! Yeah. Wait a second. That's what been happened? A toll driver for my, you know, in 1980. Now portable video was, the the news stations all had their three quarter inch, you know, that great big huge, heavy thing you carried around to have a 20 minute field cassette in it. Right, right, right. Big heavy camera, <laughs> and uh, and the 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 half inch stuff was not in the stores yet, but they were being seeded out to all the camera guys, you know. So, I thought I by then I had learned you cannot try to use the media that tells stories about TV actors and stuff. You can't use it to try to, you know, effectively <laughs> um, to try to get some story out because, you know, in time through Buffy St. Marie, I met Buffy St. Marie, somebody shared some of my songs with Buffy, and through Buffy, I met all these guys who were leaders of the American Indian Movement, which was very much in the front of the public eye at the time when I was doing Cuckoo's Nest, okay. <laughs> playing the chief. There was an occupation at Alcatraz going on. And when I was doing the play in New York, there was an occupation at Wounded Knee. And there was a, you know, a big reassertion of sovereignty rights was going on. And that was one of the dimensions of it that really had people watching on the news. But through Buffy, I met these guys. And for me, it was a a chance for two things. One was, uh, you know, in those days, the conversation was always framed about communism versus capitalism and the best statement about the difference between those two i've ever heard is that communism is man exploiting man and capitalism is just the other way around so um i'm just (laughs) got it yeah yeah. (laughs) anyway my point being that we get into these these things you know and uh and then it was the you know economy versus ecology and i found people in the native american world um, who, you know, some hadn't gotten out of high school and others had PhDs and all, but they all had a way of integrating all of those things in a way and also with dimensions of mystery of life, you know, that are th- the core of science, but they're also the core, you know, that, that, that connection of spirit. Um, so those two dimensions of life, I found, uh, probably saved me from taking the same kind of path, say, John Belushi did. Okay. John was doing Lemmings when I was doing Cuckoo's Nest. I knew Chevy in, in New York, you know, so, uh, you know, or other friends of mine. Which is it's just, it's just crazy because, like I said, you've seen so much things change in the industry. I mean, it's just, it, it yeah. must be amazing. And even, like, when Barney Miller was on around for seven years, mm-hmm. and uh, you guys were big stars. And back then, it was, like, not like now, like, there's 8,000 TV shows. Yes, back yeah, then, three, there was... Three networks yeah, and PBS, yeah. And people were watching, and back then, there wasn't all the uh, tabloids and stuff like that. But for you, because, you know, you seem like a very grounded guy, you know... You, this seems like you, you love playing the piano, you love your songs, and you, you were acting and thing. What was it like for you when you all of a sudden were, you know, seemed like a, a, a low-key guy, all of a sudden you're a star. I mean, you're a star. I mean, did that change your life at all? or did how did Yeah, you it was something grounded? I hadn't given much thought about, uh, you know, as because I was so into the just the acting process and working out the actor's studio and all of that, you know. I really hadn't thought much about about that. And then it, but the other path in my life that opened up to connecting uh, with uh, with with uh, Native American people, and and then into the environmental movement, because that time we had uh, Jackson Brown and Bonnie Raitt and Crosby, Stills and Nash were um, doing, and it formed the Muse organization, Musicians right. United for Safe Energy. So there were people looking at ways to take that attention and. And somehow connect to something beyond uh, this is just another person to hit the pot of gold. You know, it's sort of there's a sort of Hunger Games element to fame. That's right. why people, I mean, in, you know, under, underlying what people are connecting to in there. Um, so uh, I, I met a 
among those people, I, I met a guy named Floyd Westerman, along with Dennis Banks and all these other people. But Floyd was a singer-songwriter. He eventually had an acting career. I'm speaking in past tense because he, he died a few years ago. But Floyd, um, a wonderful, wonderful country singer and also a traditional Native American singer. And he was part of this group of guys who had known each other from boarding their boarding school experience. Vine Deloria, who was a highly respected writer, you know, uh, Time Magazine called him the, one of the 12 most important religious thinkers. And, you know, he wrote a book called Custer Died for Your Sins that okay. looked at at European institutions from a Native American point of view. What does a missionary look like? Can you, you know, what is it? Uh, anthropology, what... Uh, um, so it was a wonderful, you know, introduction into a, a something that said, well, here's what I can do with that notoriety. <laughs> you know, I can just talk sincerely about these other things that are going on. And sometimes that would happen. But more often, it got tweaked around into something that fit another kind of um, pattern okay. of a kind of show you know and uh so that led me to, in 1980 with all this new video tech technology showing up i thought well you know we could turn the camera around and all these uh benefit concerts i'm going to and other things going on out on reservations and you know all these wonderful things this wonderful world of people connecting with each other and, and with the rest of life and all there's a way that this has a so i kind of um you know, it was uh, along came other people took the same impulse with more of a business sense and maybe a little more riding the wave instead of being ahead of the wave to create uh, MTV and you know real world and so there was a sense of how do you take the camera on the road? Charles Kuralt, right really from a more '60s perspective, you know, all of that and that tradition of uh, being being out on the road. And I'm in the process now of digitizing all of that tape. You know? Okay. It was way too radical for ABC. That, at so, the time. But, but you're saying, like, what are what is some of, what are some of the stuff you have on tape that you're digitizing? Okay, I have um, I have been uh, on the uh, Mohawk Reservation in upstate New York at a time when the traditional Longhouse people, uh, 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 or at least their leadership, had been um, kind of taken refuge on a part of the reservation. Uh, around issues of of uh, development and change that's going on in uh, dealing with the St. Lawrence Seaway and um but uh so I was there at a time when when there was a kind of all alert the state police were on you know was it, is this going to be a six nations <laughs> insurrection right. you know and um and then back up again a couple of weeks later with Floyd and uh David Amram who's a phenomenal musician. I called this whole thing a docu-musical. Okay. I felt like within the music and understanding of music, there's a way to, for people to come together and and be in the same circle, whereas most of the time when we talk about things, oh, we're dissecting, oh, these people are over here and those people are over there, and we, we create conversations with sides instead of centers. And... and um, so that was my thinking. There's a way to use this stuff collaboratively. But um, uh, ABC had kind of bought into it because I'd been pitching this idea as so I saw the technology showing up. And you had a name with ABC because of... I was doing one of their shows. Yeah, so, so they, they were happy to put us in. And, right. and they were, they'd been totally stumped with what to do about Johnny Carson. They could not come up with anything to make a dent in his audience. And I was always saying, you know, if you did something that was very current, like up to date, but it was not a talk show because he's got it down so much, you know, but something more, you know, open. And, right. Uh, and uh, yeah, because they would come over. We didn't use a studio audience. We got rid of that very soon. But the network guys would come over and watch. And there would always be some people watching because we got the Peabody Award every year, you know. They had the A-Team as the number one show, but Barney Miller made him feel a little well, more grown up. But the up. thing is, Barney Miller was, was, and as a kid I noticed, it was just so smartly written. It was, it was because yeah. back then, you know, some some of the shows, eh, you know, but this show you watched it, and that's why I still, as I say, I don't find out reruns anymore, and it's like, that, that, that has get, more to do with who owns it and okay, who, that, that who would get bought a whole it, who put it in audience because yeah. it's it's still sharp. I'm sure it still holds up because uh. all you guys were just great characters. Uh -huh. It was something we weren't used to seeing. 
Yeah, it was re- it was really good writing and a lot of really wonderful people. I was by far the most inexperienced person there, but I think what I brought to it is that belief. I think I brought Richard belief in or some, it was sort of my that was my contribution. I think right. you know, let's do it this way, like we really believe it, not like we're doing comedy. Right, and that's the whole thing, and that's it. Never yeah. it never felt like comedy. I think that's also because you didn't have a live audience. So you said you got rid of the studio audience. Yeah, so. the audience would be the camera people and other people there. So it wasn't like they've heard the joke once and they're also hyped up. They're ready right. To let, that's the reason we got rid of them after we got on the air. They started showing up and they we couldn't let things unfold, you know, because they would laugh at the, and that cuts at the timing the, of the show. Yeah. Well, you know, it just was a different, energetically different, and. Um, but back to so so during yeah. that you were pitching to ABC about a, yes, a late yes, night show yes so then we get then things start unfolding as we head into uh, 1980 uh, we had the hostage crisis and Nightline was born Nightline that just you know recently is now more but that's 30 years later right just to deal with these hostages in Iran and uh what what's going on nightly and so they had a hit on their hand in that hour in that time period when the you know the the network uh the local uh, what is it primetime access law says that the feed has to go back to the local stations um from 7 to 8 and from 11 to 11:30 so that's why you see you know syndication or whatever you oh, know, exactly you know. so um so but I think they thought maybe I was a sort of an idiot savant, you know. <laughs> I knew something because I could, you know, I could always say, well, you got something going on. And it's, you know. And uh, so as part of my deal for the next year, I got a certain amount of money for this idea I had. And, uh, you know, I think it just enabled them to make, uh, uh, you know, to pay me a little more money and not maybe have to pay someone else. You know, they and I think they have imagined sort of, like Max Gale does Hopi pottery or something like that. <laughs> Some sort of, you know. <laughs> so, uh, so it ended up, uh, you know, the show ended, all my tape ended up kind of in the back hall closet for a time while I got married and I had a kid. And I did a play on Babe Ruth on Broadway and it was taped for PBS eventually. It showed on... And I did a TV series called Whiz Kids that was about computers and okay. kids having access to computers. And it's so weird because like back then, I mean, because I, I think I graduated college in 86 mm-hmm. and uh, I went to a state school in New Jersey mm-hmm. and I was thinking about that we had like, I think by our senior year, we had like one room with computers. Like we didn't know what a computer was. And it's so funny because now, I mean, you sit there and you were in that show so many years ago about these whiz kids now it's like I mean it just it must amaze it amazes me with the technology because it's I look at it and I go I have a tablet at home I have this thing I mean this yeah. thing is skinny This yeah. there's no hard drive this yeah. is a computer yeah. and it must have been amazing because you were on the show about computers and no one really knew much about computers yeah the guy that created the show he had a hit called Simon and Simon how right. are we doing time wise here we, we, we have over 20 minutes okay I'm, I'm having a great time talking I, to you I, right. I love your story so, so this guy these, this guy, uh, Phil DeGuerre, had a, had a hit show called Simon and Simon about two brothers. Gerald Rainey was in it. A McCraney. Yeah, and Jameson Parker. And Jameson Parker. And, you know, Jameson was a good actor. I think Gerald was just, uh, you know, on another level. And I, I, had, I had worked with him once in some TV show. I think we were on Ironside together or okay. something like that. But I just remember his, you know, we made, we made a, a good personal connection. But I think a lot of that was because he just has personal character and he brings it to his work and and people you get that you know right <laughs> so um but uh anyway so the universal had kind of given phil uh, a little carte blanche to um to uh um you know do this show he wanted to do because he was already on you know the internet existed and the World Wide web actually existed what wasn't in place was the browser Right. That would let people easily follow down and then backtrack. And, you know, <laughs> so it was, it was, there was a lot of typing in and easy to make mistakes. So people were mostly, well, you know, come along later, people mostly got into the walled gardens like AOL. But back in that day, it was open and Phil was into that. And he was also a, a hopeless deadhead. And he had that, one of the things he had on his, uh, plate was he was going to be the producer for the new twilight zone and he wanted to get the grateful dead 
to do the music for the Twilight Zone, but he didn't know how to get through to them. And the thing about the dead is, if you know, if people are in that state of mind, they have filters to keep those people right at bay. You know, they let them tape. I mean, there was, you know, but but you don't get sort of through and into it because they 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 didn't want to be living with that kind of adulation. You know, that kind of giving giving right. over of power to them. You know, rightly so. Uh, and um, so so Phil had done this pilot with kids. The network came back and said, we think that young reporter they go to see once in a while because he had access to Internet connection that they didn't have in the home at that time, you know, said he should be a little older. And they gave them a list of people, you know, from movie stars to TV stars. And at that point, I still had a high TV queue because Barney Miller was still on the air and and in reruns, you know, two times a night in most cities and all that, you know. And so um, so I. We looked at the pilot, and I met with Phil, and I said, you know, it seems like it's all sort of, the kids all live in a Steven Spielberg kind of over in the Valley suburbs. Say, what if the reporter, the older reporter, was, what if Ken Kesey decided that, you know, his kids are out on their way, and uh, maybe it's time for him to sort of get involved and leave Eugene and go down, and he decides to go down and start writing for the local Valley newspaper. Maybe he's got a little plot garden plot somewhere something maybe he drives a an old bread truck or a you know a van or something like that i mean what so we got sort of <coughs> 60s values and 80s you know and and phil knew that i was recording an album at that time my friend and and, and godfather my first daughter india merle saunders is a san francisco musician who keyboard player um Johnny Mathis was in his high school band. Okay. <laughs> no, a singer. Uh, he played with the dead. He played with all, uh, most of the people that come through the San Francisco scene had played with Merle's, um, when he was in jazz, he played with Miles Davis and people. So he was an extraordinary guy, but definitely <coughs> Phil saw him as, this is his connection to meet the dead. Okay. <laughs> so he said yes to all of my ideas, you know, <laughs> never said a word to CBS about them. <laughs> oh man you know but yes i had a i had a laptop computer that was just a mock-up because there were no laptop computers yet right you know and um uh it was basically a universal show you know i was at uh barney miller being a kind of independent show uh it was a it was a it was an interesting experience that uh you know sent me fleeing for the theater well, wait, well you're you're on these shows though i mean People have had to recognize you all the time. Did that freak you out at all? I mean, it's like, because you see it out in L.A. You know, people, now people recognize everyone. A person could be in a reality show. And it's like, right, like how do you recognize? Mm-hmm. But for you, it must have been crazy because you were on these two series. And just, I mean, how did someone take that when, you know, I mean, as I said, you seem like a guy who likes to play his music and just be chill. And then people, because you know how fans are. People go nuts i mean they must they must how many times have you been yelled whoa joe I mean, during that time you, well, every I, I, day. you know uh, they're the off, often the way someone would say hello and recognize me hey whoa joe where's barney for some right. reason where's barney okay <laughs> but you know i remember i grew up in a in a family that you know by the time i was three i was the oldest of five and when i was six i was the oldest of seven so right. when, when we would go out as a family and go into a restaurant or wherever or anything you know, the people would be look look up and looking. You know, so I wasn't like, um, and I grew up in the Midwest, and my parents are both were both extroverts, and so sometimes it's just about connecting. Just like we're sort of finding each other here because there's an is an oddity, is a sort of a one way part of my job is to go ahead and talk, right? You know, <laughs> but uh, or that's part of the agreement. But we're actually getting to know each other in this process, and so that um that came to be uh you know it's just how quickly can i get from that without um you know making somebody feel uncomfortable right right now some people are very insistent they that's the form they want the interaction to be you know but i found for the most part it was 
pretty easy to get there. Now, now, okay, so you've been acting all these years, but now are you still playing a lot of music? Because it seems that you really have this love for music. It's like, I never knew you recorded an album. And, and you know, I so said, did, I mean, do you still play music a lot? I, st- I still play music. I'm more of a musical person. Okay. People like Merle and, and, and uh, you know, I can list, and, you know, a list of great, great piano players that I'm not at all. Uh, I'm more into the, the, the way words come to me to work through certain things. And then they're sort of like my breadcrumbs in the cosmic forest. You know, I can go back to go back to them to help me get to the, a place that I might lose otherwise. So it's uh, uh, so um, um, there's something in the way you asked your question that I actually had an answer. Are you more of a musical guy or acting? Are you been doing all this stuff? I mean, oh. it seems like it seems like you. When I say talk to you, I get uh, the feeling you just have this. Uh, love for music I mean I'm not love for acting but just it seems like music has been such an important part of your life yes it's my it is my through line that's okay. what I that's what I you know to, to, to connect with and then there is a part of that uh, sharing it but there is something about acting for a good while I lost after that with uh, uh, with the with the whiz kids because there was a whole lot of politics and and, and power stuff and it was difficult you know, every day the the way the man the way the uh, uh, executive producer, not Phil DeGuerra was telling me about, but the guy who was running the plant at Universal, you know, he would fire somebody every week, and the kids would be devastated. And I go to him, talk to him, you know, like, well, what's that about? Because Barney Miller, we had the network tried to fire the 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 uh, you know center gal once because she let something go through, and Danny said, you know, until she's back on the set, we're shutting down. Okay. So this guy's, you know, his attitude was, you know, I'll be polite to you, Max, because you're the you're the actor, but you know, you can f off because this is how I do it. This is how I shape up. I got a bunch of people; they all want to be on a show. I want a crew that you know gets it done. And um, so there was that that kind of lot of lot of dynamics going on around where we take the story and what are we doing, and and I put a lot of energy into it. And I had gotten married and had um, had a, a a daughter. And um, during that time, and it was really, really my wife that got together with Merle. They had a great connection. She said, we got to get Max to record some of his songs and kind of pushed it to get it organized okay. and get, get players together and do that. So, uh, And then while I was doing the, that um, Babe Ruth, one-man show in Babe Ruth in, in New York, and uh, Willie was there, my, da- my wife and my daughter, India, and uh, we found out Willie had cancer. So, and, you know, she lived for two more years, and then I was a single parent, which right. really opened up my, you know, I thought, oh, I'm an actor-activist, I guess, you know, uh, uh, and was not our first choice at all, but, you know, I've since remarried and had, um, you know, two wonderful kids, and I've, re- re- you know, found a relationship with my older biological daughter who'd been giving up for adoption, and I've um, got another son who was my second wife's nephew whose parents had died and he came to live with us and so I, it's you know it's all been a wonderful journey but it but it changed me when I came back I had changed and the business had changed and I just kind of lost that thread and in looking for what I want, was going to do with these videos that I right. had shot that had been in the back hall closet but now seem very relevant coming into the 90s and, and I wanted to fulfill in all the contributions that people also had made and uh, stories that they had shared. And so I went to explore the whole business of CD-ROMs because at that time, CD-ROM was, you oh, put yeah. it on a CD-ROM, all the early adopters, you know. And, uh, and, uh, but it was, it was bothering me that you had to be, have a, have a certain amount of disposable income to get a computer. And how would we get access? We could, I could see we could have a better conversation as a species right. with these online wet realm. The on-air was gonna was gonna converge with the on uh, line online and on land. You know the grassroots, right? Because that was the hard thing about doing documentaries. You get the documentary made. How do you get it out? True. And how do you connect it up to the grassroots stuff that's going on? So I, so while I was looking at the CD-ROM, somebody showed me Mosaic, which had been developed by college students in Illinois, and about a year or so later became the Netscape browser, and then Microsoft went, oh. 
maybe we should have made a browser, you know? And they did, you know, and now we have all that we have. But that's really what kind of opened the floodgates. And for me, it was like, I had this idea, well, you could do a show that was part TV show, like a place-based comedy, like a Cheers or a Barney Miller, but it's, it's set in a place where people come and get access to these things and each other and telling their stories. And it's set in a local access place because that's lap. You know, and lap is this wonderful word that, you know, you have your lap and I have my right. lap. And our lap's all our domain of care, charge, control, and responsibility, you know. Uh, and all these other wonderful meanings of lap that, um, you know, could be a part of that creating access. Now we have computers in our pockets, you know. So oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's unfolded crazy. in ways that we didn't expect. But our need to be able to share in that way and see where, you know, our, our cares about you know, our cares reach out and overlap with each other because we're in a world that defaults to debate on every issue. Are you for, are you for evolution or are you for creation? Well, let's see. Evolution creates and creation evolves. So what's the argument? It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy like that. It's every, and you're, everything's debatable now. It's like, you can't, you just can't go out, you know, and someone's always, I mean, you know how it is. You can go out anywhere and someone always has to sit there and, Start a conversation, and you sit there and go, yeah, you know, we're just, it's the, we're just, we're just hanging out. It's the default framing. Yes, exactly. It's and just, we, if we had, I think if we had a, you know, a more of a way to say, well, what, you know, just to, to say, let's, let's do this other thing, which in, you know, in other circles, like in, in, in Native American, in traditional circles in most places, I mean, in traditional cultures, that circle is just a way that people get, you know. Exactly. They, you know, so we, we we have about eight minutes, nine minutes yeah. left. I want to talk about now. You, I know you you. I've seen you in some different. You were in forty two. You know, are you getting back into the acting now? Yeah. So a time my stash ran out. I couldn't figure out a way to make money with this idea because okay. it wasn't that. It wasn't something that could be an IPO. Uh, and I was. I began to realize, boy, I really I have been ahead of my time, which is not really different from being wrong. So I think we are at a time now where this idea of a what I came to see is understand was an open source notion. You know, open source is that it's an ancient it's an ancient human idea of sharing. Right. But it, it got expressed in software. You know, say, well, we're going to create this like Linux. You know, no one owns it. Anyone can improve it. Everyone can use it. You know, that kind of sense of things. And and that that's what that's what this idea was about. And it was really about wetware. It wasn't hardware or software, you know, so how to, how to think about it. But it certainly is a time where we, people are looking and seeing the value of being able to share in a different kind of conversation than just a zero sum game argument. And I, I believe so. It's like, it's not too late to have dialogue. It's too late to not have dialogue. Right. So, um, so that's been my through line, but I did, you know, just run out of most of my stash got used up with a terminal illness and then not working during the time where I sort of dropped out. So I've been flying over just over the treetops for quite a while, you know, but it's okay. Uh, what uh, um, brought me back was that I uh, did a film with a wonderful, courageous um, uh, woman with uh, CP who also was a, done stand-up comedy and acting and she had written this screenplay and and she asked me to play a part in it and um, and then during that time somebody asked me to come in and read uh, for a pilot but it wasn't the kind of deal with most pilots you go in and read for the pilot if you read well and you get along then you're invited to come back and read for the network but before you do that, the lawyers and the agents all get involved and work out your deal, ostensibly so that you can't say once they, you know they really want you, you're really going to hold their feet over the fire. But it sets up, just when you should be creating, it sets up this other thing that then becomes, I just couldn't get through those final readings. I go like, I don't, there's something. Right. I didn't, that wasn't Barney Miller. Barney Miller was right there with Danny and he's looking at me and we're working and we're connecting and he hires me, you know. This was now a, different kind of thing and i just my, my i couldn't find my heart in it or something i certainly had to stick i certainly would have been nice to make that kind of you know cash right. flow again but anyway um i i um i know you want to wrap this up but i i just 
found a guy that had created this show about three uh, generations of a family. It was multi-camera. It was all improv. Um, and it had a wonderful bunch of talented people in all those generations. I was the grandfather. Dee Wallace was the grandmother. Um, and did this show, and the network picked it up and came back and made deals with us and said, you know, look, we don't have that much, so nobody, you know, right. we'll, we'll, we'll have to replay, you know. And we had a wonderful half season, got uh, great reviews, couldn't make a dent in the, uh, in um, uh, America, uh, um, what was it, the one on Fox, you know, the... Married with Children? No, no, it was a, the, 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 the uh, talent show. Oh, American Idol. American Idol, oh, yeah, yeah. Exactly. yeah. yeah. But basically, because you stand on this technology thread, which I think is interesting, because at that time, the Internet had really certainly made its place, but the TV world had been kind of stung because they, they tried to buy it in a sense. This is a shorthand, but they bought up a bunch of search engines that if you were paying attention, you knew they were all going to go by the wayside because Google had come along with a whole other approach to search. And so the idea that you could buy the internet was a losing proposition, you know. But meanwhile, people were putting stuff out. So ABC was the first one to really take the lead and say, we're going to go. We know we haven't worked out the deals with the unions. We don't know, but, but this is where it's going. But NBC actually owned this show. It was called Sons and Daughters um, for various reasons. And NBC was still in the place of over our dead body where we ever really... Had. Right. So ABC had no reason to run the show through the summer. They couldn't even get the DVD rights on it, you know. So there was a kind of a, a thing around that ABC, instead they came up with a show called Brothers and Sisters that was not like ours was way more edgy and stuff. Like it was a wonderful, I won't say it was just the same idea, but but that got my appetite going okay again to get back into the yeah. acting so i've been out wagging my tail and doing different things and 42 was a great experience. yeah I just, I, and i just actually i saw you on an episode of legit uh yes. which was such that i watched that on uh netflix and that was a show got canceled which i don't think it should have because that was just a good show uh-huh and it's it stinks sometimes when you like a show and it gets canceled and you go oh come on it's different it's cutting edge you know they're they're doing something here but people go oh we can't watch that because it's too edgy and it just irritates me sometimes like Frank Zappa exactly. said they say why do you think that uh, you know in uh, Russia they love your classical you know symphonic twelve tone you know but they love your music and and in America they hardly even know about it he said well there's no accounting for taste right exactly we have a few minutes left okay. um, so the show the movie that was in F uh, the Southwest that was an independent movie you did it's called The Frontier and it's actually going to be playing in New York starting on the 12th and uh, and here in the Valley at the Lemley on the 19th. Okay. For, I don't know, a week or two, you know, if they get people go see it. I was a wonderful experience uh, with people. I was, by a factor of two, the oldest other person on the set. You know? Right. <laughs> I mean, the next youngest was, but, uh, uh, you know, we were all, it was the first time I've ever had, you know, that kind of lead role in something as a relationship film. Uh, but I, you know, people who've seen it like it. So, um, you know, uh. that's great. Though. I mean, that's just great. That's just you know. But yeah, and you, I mean, you're you're working. I see a lot of stuff going on here, and, uh, and yeah, and so uh, yeah, I want to thank you for coming on. I because uh, I, I I do an hour show. I, it was it was nice meeting you. Yeah, you too. Now now so the the frontier that's going to be in the Lemley, mm -hmm. and your character. What kind of character did you play? I play a uh, retired college professor who has been pretty much on the slide since his wife died. Okay. And his son, teenage son, left home not long after that and has not been back. And he's, uh, you know, on some level ready to try to try to, try to deal with these things, the, the, the pain or whatever it is that's driving. It wasn't like we tried to answer a whole lot of specific questions, but it's about the relationship of the... The father and the son comes back. He's been, you know, working on a ranch out, you know, he grew up in Venice. He's working on a ranch in Montana. And uh, so, uh, and there's a young uh, gal who's been helping me get my, my last book together. Okay. And it's, so they have three people that have something for each other. Well, good. Well, I wanna, I, I'm, I'm going to go see it because I live in Burbank. And if it's at the Lemley, and is it going to be in NoHo, do you know, or Pasadena? 
No, no. Okay, no, I'm, that's, I just drove right. by there the other night because I, right. I, will, I will go try to check it out. Me and my girlfriend. I'll be there on the 19th. Okay, when they cool. open up. So we, it was a pleasure meeting yeah. you. I want to thank you. I hope you had some fun today. It was uh, great talking to you. I did, likewise. And so people, yes, yeah, so much. go check it out if you're in the in the LA area. Also, people, uh, check my website out, coopertalk.net. I have about 290 episodes up on there. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at coopertalk. Are you on Twitter? Yes. What's your? Um, Max Gale, M, capital M, Max, right, no no space, Gale. Follow Max I'm Gale. Not, yeah, please do. Follow I'm not very Gale. active on it. But. <laughs> we'll get you active. And so, yeah, so people, yes, yeah, check it out, and we'll see when the date is coming. I'll tweet it. He'll tweet it. We'll both tweet it. And, uh, yeah, also send me an email, cooper at coopertalk.net. Also, um, iTunes and Stitcher, you can find me. Just type in Cooper Talk one word. All my episodes are up there. Uh, once again, send, follow me on Twitter. I love tweeting. It's at Cooper Talk. And I want to thank my guest, Max Gale. Follow him on Twitter. And also, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, take your vitamins, eat your vegetables. You guys have a safe and sound weekend. <laughs>